Let's get this started. Hi there. This is Talking American Studies. I'm Verena Adamick, and I'm excited to present to you the very first episode of this podcast. So to quickly introduce the project, Talking American Studies is a podcast dedicated to the currents of North American studies in Germany, and it aims to spotlight contemporary contributions to North American studies. So basically, it wants to provide brief introductions to topics, and it will feature scholars sharing their work in their own voices. So our topic today will be the digital humanities and their place in North American studies in Germany. I'm very happy that I can provide you excerpts and insights from an interview that I conducted with two scholars who represent the digital humanities in German North American studies, Dr. Dennis Mischke from the University of Potsdam and Dr. Alexander Dunst from the University of Paderborn. They are also the editors of the current special issue of the America Studien, American Studies Journal on Digital Humanities. For those who are completely new to the discussion, let me quickly explain. Digital humanities, or short DH, essentially means employing computer-based methods in research. This is, however, not the same as using computers for our daily needs, such as writing emails or reading an ebook or finding a title in a library catalog. Instead, DH projects revolve around the collection and analysis of data relevant to the humanities. Such data would come from digitized texts or pictures or all kind of metadata. Digital humanities also include the production of digital text editions. The digital humanities are therefore a wide field, as Alexander pointed out. It, it, maybe this is something that people know anyway, but I think it's important to understand that that term digital humanities is really an umbrella term. It was always thought of um, as, a, as a big tent, which was a, a, a term that was used a lot, maybe like five, ten years ago. But same when you go to conferences, there's fascinating uh, projects in digital archaeology and there's fascinating projects working on Sumeric script. But, of course, you know, the range is, is so wide. Not only are the DH such a wide-ranging field, but they are also, by their very nature, operating on a highly interdisciplinary level. One of the interesting things about this kind of interdisciplinary work, which is a different kind of interdisciplinary work than I think is usually meant by that term, at least in Germany, where interdisciplinarity is, is seen as something where someone in, in, in French studies works with someone in Slavic studies. But that's not the interdisciplinarity we're talking about. We're talking about uh, across boundaries between the social sciences, the engineering sciences, the natural sciences, and the humanities. And I think the meeting ground for that obviously includes critical thinking. And it's naive to, to, to believe that scientists don't do any critical thinking. But it also means that the, the empirical part of this work is, is what allows you to share and to collaborate because you have results, because you have methods that you can follow every step and where you can participate in the other person's work. So there are multiple disciplines who have actually contributed to the methods and the developments in the digital humanities, which is something that Dennis talked about a bit more extensively in the interview. A lot of know-how is coming from the field of computer linguistics and is contributing to the field of the cognitive sciences, 
but has, of course, um, hugely inspired the traditional mainstream, if you will, for, of the digital humanities. So digital humanities would probably be unthinkable uh, without the, the, mm. the work of um, computer linguistics, uh, yeah. computational linguistics. The cognitive sciences appeared to be, to me as a student, a discipline which tackled classical humanities questions, right? What is the mind? What is the brain? What's the difference between the two? How do they work together? What is text? How does reading work? All these things in, in a kind of digital way already, because the cognitive scientists had always used, since the early 90s, um, computational tools and methods in order to answer these classical humanities questions. And so I was always intrigued by this. And I've always tried to combine these two things, these two fields, these two approaches, right? the mind, the questions of understanding uh, involving the humanities, but also the, the computational tools that are available coming from the fields such as you know, computational science, but also um, cognitive uh, studies, cognitive science, etc., etc. What we do with the results produced by such interdisciplinary work and whether we actually need numeric data or statistics and visualizations for our work, well, essentially that is where opinions differ. For example, in October 2017, Timothy Brennan, Professor for Cultural Studies and Comparative Literature at the University of Minnesota, published an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education, and this article was entitled The Digital Humanities Bust. It went positively viral, including its own Twitter hashtags, responses published in the New York Times, and heated discussions in various comment sections. The arguments that he put forth in the article are well rehearsed in academia by now. Essentially, he made two claims. One, he accused digital humanities of making extravagant promises that they could not fulfill, and of, in his words, technophilia crossed with a love for his own neologisms. So, he understands the methods of digital humanities as severely limited, so that they provide the answers to questions that are actually of little interest to the humanities as such. The hype for computing in the humanities is thus founded, and again in his words, on the confusion of more information for more knowledge. Brennan then made a second claim, which goes even further. The digital humanities run the danger of encouraging the opposite of a critical consciousness, whereas, of course, thinking against prevailing norms should be the staple of our field. To gain a better understanding for what digital humanities do, I collected a bunch of examples. One of them is a pamphlet by the Stanford Literary Lab, which, um, by the way, was founded in 2010 by Franco Moretti and Matthew Jokers. And the pamphlet that I looked at was published in September 2018. What the lab did for this pamphlet was collect data on a large, relatively random set of authors from two different digital sources. The data was then visualized as a graph. Goodreads.com provided the data for the popularity with the masses axis, and data drawn from the MLA was depicted on a prestige axis. Overall, the findings were not surprising. The authors comment themselves that the depicted clusters aligned nicely with intuitive lived experience, as certain genres, periods, and groups of authors share a similar cultural presence. The findings were also compared to a chart developed by the iconic French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu. Bourdieu, however, had no data to back him up, so for his chart he intuited the different categories and placings based on educated guesses. And that is, of course, one of the advantages of digital methods. 
instead of intuition or alternatively small hand-interpreted samples, digital humanities develop the information to support or to contest claims. And this is also something that Alexander talked about in our interview. I do think in a lot of cases it can answer questions that maybe were asked in the past and where people assumed that they had been answered. But very often, I think, if if you look at existing scholarship from an empirical or from a quantitative or a computational perspective, what you see is that questions are answered in a kind of in in a kind of qualitative or haphazard way and 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 they seem merely to be statements, statements that are repeated so often that they become accepted as knowledge. And I think one of the things that DH can do is to go back to these questions, go back to these research results. So I don't want to spoil any more here. I will just point out that all the pamphlets of the Stanford Literary Lab are available online and they're open access. And um, I will provide a link on this podcast's online platforms. Throughout the interview, a lot of interesting papers and work groups were mentioned. As I did my PhD on Herman Melville, it's of course quite convenient to point out to the Melville Electronic Library by John Bryant, which is of course a, a digital library of Melville's writings, but it's a kind of critical archive about Herman Melville that also tries to use the potential of digital tools um, to find out more about this particular 19th century author. What they did, or what John Bryant, for example, did with the Melville Electronic Library, he looked at the manuscripts of a couple of his novels, and he developed a tool with which the Melville Electronic Library was able to visualize the many changes that Melville had done to his, to his manuscript over the time. And John Bryant developed the idea of fluid texts from, from this project, uh, thinking about what kind of entity is a manuscript. And if you approach the study of manuscript, um, you know, from a digital perspective, you can really see that texts are actually fluid entities that, um, you know, change and can change um, and authors do change these entities. Um, but of course, they're also changed by, by larger contexts. There was one very simple project that I like. And maybe it's interesting to mention that because it's because it doesn't demand a huge amount of computation. And they simply they have a corpus of of novels. This is a project at the University of Pennsylvania that uh, James English did with graduate students. Mm -hmm. But they looked at at what time novels were set, contemporary novels. So they had three categories. It's very simple. In the future, in the present, the present was defined so 2018 in this case minus 20 years, so to 1998, that would be the present, and then the past. And they divided up the novels in this um, corpus in these three categories, set in the future, set in the present, set in the past. And they could show that there'd been an extreme shift in when novels were set over the last 50 years, in that increasingly novels are set in the past, so that by now the vast majority of contemporary novels that are prize-winning, that win the Pulitzer Prize, that win the Booker Prize, etc., are historical novels, rather than novels that are set in the present, which was the majority of novels that won prizes 50, 60 years ago. And for me, that's very simple, because in the, 
you don't really need much computation at all. You can you need a, a small database, and then you need some kind of statistical apparatus to actually come up with your results. But it tells you something that is very interesting. Tells you something I think about contemporary society, about how literary prizes work, about how the literary market works. What I really liked about these examples is that they nicely illustrate that interpreting the findings provided, so turning the information into knowledge, is still up to the critical minds of scholars. Another project that I found very impressive is uh, the so-called viral text project by Ryan Cordell from the Northeastern University, which is an attempt to to look at a big new newspaper corpus. And to study how the you know how news in the nineteenth century spread through you know the the copying of certain contents within newspapers, there's a certain pattern to the uh, to how news spread um, in the nineteenth century and before that is akin or similar to the way news spread in 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 our contemporary digital age, and that's why he called it viral text. And through the use of these vast libraries um, and vast databases of digitized um, newspapers, Cordell and, uh, and others were able to to really track the movement of certain news and actually study how they how they travel. And I think this is a fascinating project from the perspective of cultural studies because I think cultural studies has always been interested in and finding out more about you know the larger processes of globalization which always involves the movement of people but has always also involved the movement of ideas how do ideas travel is i think an, an important question that cultural studies asks and has always asked and alexander himself is part of a group that works on graphic novels which is also how he got involved in dh in the first place and he talked a bit about that in our interview as well i ran into a colleague from the Cognitive Sciences in, in, in Potsdam at a workshop where I asked him whether they'd ever done any work on comics. So this is Jochen Laubrock, who's in the Cognitive Science Department, someone who does a lot of eye tracking. So where you use digital cameras to track how someone reads text or looks at images. And they said, no, we've never done, we've never done that, but it would be very interesting because it combines texts and images. So then we just wrote an application in 4DH kind of funding scheme, which was this uh, funding scheme that happened a few years ago, and it was called eHumanities, and it was with the, the German Federal Ministry of Education and Research. And they funded both kind of early career research groups and centers, and then by chance or luck or whatever, we got the money to start a, a research group that looks specifically at graphic novels from a DH perspective, but also from a, I guess, a very computational digital perspective with eye tracking as well. Now, with all these fascinating approaches in mind, let's get back to Brennan's article and the ensuing debates and points of critique. The discussions illustrate that, even though the digital humanities have been around for a while now, they are still controversial. One of the field's most known representatives, Franco Moretti, may have been in part responsible for that, because he once polarized academics with a rather provocative call to cease reading altogether. And in this, he attacked literary scholars' staple method, close reading. Of course, there is a relationship between a, a method and the questions you ask and the questions you answer. And I think that is true of, of any approach. That's true of American studies. That's true of different disciplines. 
That's also true of something like culture and literary studies. Um, I think we could turn it around and ask sort of what questions does American studies ask traditionally and what other questions might there be that we could ask with the help of other methodologies. And I think DH or digital American studies um, can help us expand the kind of questions we can ask and the kind of questions we can answer. Of course, I also asked Dennis and Alexander to address some of the concerns regarding the methods and limitations of digital humanities. My address would always be to ask people to be a little bit more patient or to have more patience for the digital humanities in general, as this field is really just evolving and shaping up. And, you know, we talked a little bit about the effort efforts that you know digital humanities projects require it's a lot of people involved you need a lot of different experts coming from different fields that start to work together and work on one research question or maybe a couple of related research questions which is a very difficult thing to organize so i you know i'd like to ask the critics of the digital humanities to be more patient we also talked about how the age and the academic discourse surrounding it opens up crucial critical debates Alexander pointed out how the way the digital humanities work challenges an age-old conception of the critic as an individual. Somehow in the humanities we often have, despite our kind of tradition of critical thinking, we have this naive belief in the, the kind of individual subjective brilliance of, of the scholar who, I mean, maybe that's a cliche to say, okay, we, we sit at home and, or sit in the office and come come out with the mm-hmm. yeah. with, with, with with the monograph because there is of course interactions beyond conferences and all this but there is to an extent this belief that it's the individual scholar and his intellectual or her intellectual capabilities that produce the work and somehow I, I find this to be something that's left over from the 19th century mm-hmm. from someone like Diltai and this kind of work where we've deconstructed subjectivity we've spent decades deconstructing the individual subject and all these kinds of things. But when it comes to the individual scholars, suddenly we start believing in all of this again. And I think when you do DH work or the kind of work where you engage with people every day, one of the exciting things is that you share and you create together and you notice that you can actually get further by, by doing that on a regular basis than mm-hmm. by sitting in your office and only meeting for coffee breaks and mm-hmm. conferences. And then Dennis elaborated how a deeper understanding of how the digital world works can contribute to a more critical approach to the way that we research and use researching tools. I think we all rely on databases, right? We all go to JSTOR to find articles. We all use search engines like <laughs> Google. We all use these big you know, repositories. Hardly any one of us is really knowledgeable about how these black boxes actually work. And most of us don't really care because it's too complicated. Ryan Cordell that I've mentioned earlier on has once alerted us to a term that he called source criticism. He says, we actually need a form of source criticism because since we usually do not really know how much of the stuff that we find on our you know, digital tools uh, through the digital databases we use has been created, how it's been digitized, 
what has not been digitized, or whether you know the the, the OCR, the optical character recognition tools that have been used in order to um, make this accessible, you know, make the text accessible to search engines in the first place, whether they have actually covered more than 60% accuracy, or what we get when we use search terms is maybe just based on a text that has been um, that turned into a machine-readable text by 68% or so. You know, This is what experts usually call dirty OCR. And when we use these interfaces, we might not know about these things, but in, in a way there is a, there's, a, there's an important power question involved that is lurking at the back of this. And what the digital humanities, I think, can contribute to this field is we can shed some light on the intricacies of, of these infrastructures because digital humanists have, by definition, you know, through their work, acquired a certain expertise of dealing with digital technologies. Another advantage of digital humanities that actually both stressed is the positive effect it has on teaching. Students can be researchers uh, within the age in a way that maybe in our everyday kind of university context they're not. There's a lot of work um, that students can do and I think research and teaching kind of move closer together in the age than they have been for a while. I think that's a very positive development and I think you can teach the age or you need to teach the age by actually getting students uh, to do the age and we all know that that has very kind of like positive results on the response you get, the interest you get from students. This this new format of, or this new role of students being participants in the research process, I think something that is, that is novel and that has a lot of benefits for both the students and the lecturers. And this is also something that Alex wrote in our um, introduction to the special issue that we edited, which kind of stuck in my head. And that is, I don't know if you came up with this or if that was a quote where he said that DH kind of encourages us scholars to become students again, right? And to kind of use the expertise that we've gathered and to acquire a new kind of expertise in the field of the digital, right? Using digital tools, maybe even learning how to write a program, how to script. Not necessarily always, you know, writing code, but maybe just working with digital tools, which is, of course, something that requires effort and requires, you know, being a student again. As Dennis just expounded, engaging with the digital humanities does require some effort. Crafting questions based on the possibilities of programming and creating code asks of thinking both code and culture in one brain. And I'm here quoting Professor Manfred Thaler, from an introductory book on DH for students. But for a long time, institutions of higher education in Germany seldom encouraged such crossovers. So people who have knowledge of both fields are still relatively rare. And the digital humanities also require other changes on multiple levels. They are taught in workshops and so-called hackathons instead of seminars and lectures. They are often based on collaborative work instead of single author readings. They are likely published open access and even open source, and they take place in what is called labs and work groups instead of single-person reading nooks. So, digital humanities are always also about networking and infrastructures. In fact, I think the digital humanities 
is a field that is unthinkable without infrastructures, research infrastructures, in this case logical infrastructures, you know, networks of people working together in an interdisciplinary way, but also physical infrastructures in the sense of computer, computer networks, um, you know, computational tools, etc., etc. And the funding for the discipline in general is growing, as more and more universities such as Cologne, Tübingen, Göttingen or Stuttgart incorporate TH in their teaching and research portfolios. If you work in digital humanities, you get that feeling very quickly that the field is moving somewhere, it's growing. Digital humanities are now connected throughout different fields in Germany, and that includes North American studies. And a case in point is the special issue of America Studien American Studies released this month. Let's hear where Alexander situates the issue. I think one of the, the interesting things for us about this special issue was really to bring different perspectives into this conversation and into this emerging body of computational scholarship, of digital scholarship in American studies. And our focus is really on European contributions, contributions that are European perhaps in, in two senses of the word. First, by scholars that work in Europe, And secondly, also, European perspectives in the sense that they are transatlantic or transnational perspectives, in that they look at the United States from a perspective that connects it to Europe and connects it to a lot of the transfers and interconnections between the United States or between North America and Europe. And because the field is so new, that's not something that's, that's, that's really happened um, very much. And I think that's, that's interested, interesting in, in looking at this special issue to see who contributed. And it's, it's a very international, it's a relatively small issue, but it's very international. And we have colleagues from Italy and from United, the United Kingdom and from Poland. And I think that's good to see how people are working sort of across Certain mm -hmm. national borders there in ways that doesn't always happen, I think, in American studies or necessarily in American studies in, in, in Germany or other countries that are, have their own tradition. Finally, if you are now excited about the age and your fingers are just itching to get started, here are some recommendations by Dennis for all of the noobs out there. So just to start hands-on um, and to go about and, and do a little digital analysis by using one of the many available tools that are online and easy to use, like Voyant, for example, that I mentioned, play around with these tools. An expression that I like very much is that the digital humanities are not so much about thinking about something. It raises the question of how can we think with something with other people with colleagues with you know colleagues from other departments um, how can we think with certain tools how can we think with the digital i'd like to you know encourage people or scholars or students who are interested in the digital humanities to just go and try it and um, you don't have to be a programmer you don't have to be a data scientist to start working with digital tools to do some to do a digital digital analysis Mapping tools are very easy to use, for example, right? Google Maps to start with, maybe. But also ArcGIS uh, has a very easy interface that is interesting to use. But there are also other tools that have been developed in Germany sp specifically for the, the age community. I'm very uh, happy that we have a tool like the Daria Geo Browser, for example, that was developed in, in Göttingen by the State and University Library Research Department. 
uh, in Gauteng, and it's a, it's a great tool, easy to use. If you want to visualize the spatial settings of novels, for example, you can Google it and use it. Of course, you can find the links to these tools and the names to the projects and papers mentioned throughout the episode on our online platforms. Okay, that's it for now. Special thanks go to Dr. Alexander Dunst and Dr. Dennis Mischke, who was not only my interviewee, but extremely collegial in giving me access to the scene of the age in general. I also want to thank Christina Baudemann from the University of Flensburg, Catherine Williams from Cardiff University, as well as Michael Krause and Andrew Erickson, both from my home base at the University of Potsdam, for proofreading and proof listening. Final thanks go to Professor Nicole Waller, who has encouraged this project from the get-go. Any comments and queries you might have are, of course, welcome. Talking American Studies is on Facebook and Twitter and can be reached via email under talkingamericanstudies at posteo.net. You can follow the podcast and maybe even share it via Spotify, iTunes or the current homepage talkingamericanstudies.buzzsprout.com. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that you'll listen in again. Bye.